it is, uh, every bit of God's word that we hide in our heart is not lost, but it will bear fruit. And so let's hide his word uh, in our hearts. Let me pray for us this morning and we will turn to our text. Again, Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word, preach your word, to believe your word, to apply your word, knowing that your word is life. Give us life this morning from your word. Strengthen us. Build us up in the most holy faith and keep us until the coming of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, baby. What do you think is the number one threat to the family? I suppose there are many answers to that question. One researcher wrote a little summary article. He looked at a number of research papers on the breakdown of the family and uh, threats to the family and reasons for family breakup. And he sort of summarized those articles into 13 reasons. I'll give you several of them now. Maybe the first six or seven. Conflict, arguing, irretrievable breakdown in the relationship. That's number one. Number two, a lack of commitment. Number three, infidelity or extramarital affairs. Number four, distance in the relationship or the lack of physical intimacy. Number five, communication problems between partners. Number six, domestic violence, verbal, physical, or emotional abuse by a partner. Number seven, realization that one spouse has different values and morals. Number eight, substance abuse, alcohol addiction. Number nine, absence of romantic intimacy or love. Number 10, one partner not carrying their weight in a marriage. Number 11, financial problems or debt. Number 12, marrying too young. And number 13, lack of shared interests or incompatibility between partners. I said that shared a first six or seven, but we got on a roll there. Those are indeed are some of the most frequent problems that lead to the sort of breakdown of families. But I wonder if a list of specific reasons like this on some level missed the point, missed the most significant problem. From the very first family in the Garden of Eden, the most significant threat to the family has been sin and whether or not we learn to respond to sin in a gospel way. Nearly every one of those 13 reasons we just went through for family breakdown have their root in sin and the inability to deal with sin using the tools and the resources that God gives us in the gospel. And what's true in a natural biological family is also true in the spiritual church family. The most significant threat to the family of God, which as we've been saying is really the subject of chapter five, is sin. And the most important thing the church needs to learn in dealing with that threat is how to respond to it in a gospel way. In our text this morning, 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 to 25, the word sin occurs four times, four times in those six verses. If you include in verse 19 the word charge as a synonym for sin, then it's mentioned five times. And if you include the specific sin listed called partiality, it's mentioned at least once for every verse here. So the main idea in this text, the main problem in this text is the problem of sin. 
And the thing that this text is trying to teach us is how to respond to it as God's family in a gospel way, in a biblical way. Verses 19 and 20 teach what should be done when an elder is accused of sin. Verses 21 to 23 warn Timothy about his own personal sin and temptation to sin as a pastor. And verses 24 and 25 talk about the the timing of the revelation of sin, how it can differ among the people in different circumstances. So pastor's sin, there's personal sin, there's the people's sin. One thing you get when you gather sinners, even redeemed sinners, is sin, right? But how do we treat it? How do we deal with it? as God's family. Well, I would suggest in this text, we can uh, get three lessons for dealing with sin in the family of God. Three brief, quick lessons, briefly stated lessons uh, from this text. Number one, when we're dealing with sin as God's family, we need to, number one, be careful. Should be careful, verses 19 and 20. Number two, we should be holy. Should be holy, verses 21 and 23. And number three, we should be patient. Should be patient, verses 14 and 15. That's the recipe for responding to sin in God's household, whether it's the leaders or the people. That's the recipe for responding in a way that helps us neutralize our basic threat, sin. Look with me in 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's word. So how do we deal with sin in the family? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to be careful. Notice again, verses 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In verses 19 and 20, Paul uh, is referring to the sins of elders. He introduced the topic of elders in verse 17. So in verses 17 and 18, he talked about how you treat elders when they serve well. Now here in verses 19 and 20, he's talking about how you treat elders when they serve poorly, when they are found to be in sin. Now, something that should be obvious, but let's just state it out front. Pastors do sin. I know that's a surprise to y'all, given the passage you have here, but pastors do sin. Now, if someone acts like their pastor does not sin, then basically they're guilty of pastor worship because there's only one sinless one. The question isn't if elders or pastors sometimes sin. The question is what to do 
about it? What to do if we suspect they may have sinned? How do we handle it in a gospel biblical way? And here in verses 19 and 20, Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful in, in, in at least three ways. Be careful to stop gossip and slander. Be careful, first of all, to stop gossip and slander. See what he says in verse 19? Do not admit a charge against an elder. Now, Paul knew what it was like to be blamed for certain things. When you read his letters in the New Testament, many of his letters will have sections that contain a defense of his ministry or a defense of his person or a defense of his motive. He was blamed quite a bit as an apostle of God. He knows that God's work can be slowed and stopped by Satan's whisper campaign. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now get this, sometimes Satan uses the brethren to accuse the brethren. He sows little whispers of divisiveness and whispers of slander and gossip. So, so the Bible puts the church in a kind of defensive posture. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder. Don't be the kind of person who gives any room to he said, she said. Don't be the kind of person who warms their hands by the fire of slander and innuendo. Don't be the kind of person who thinks that, that we can't be taken in and fooled by someone else's story. That's the first step to being fooled, is thinking you can't be fooled. To think we can hear gossip, sift out the truth all by ourselves, and arrive at a perfect, unbiased judgment, beloved, is simply hubris. It's pride. It's unchecked ego. It's irrational confidence in our own intellectual ability. We are all capable of treating as factual something that is not actual. Indeed, today's culture rewards rushed judgments and punishes careful thinking, especially when it involves leadership. We want a head on a stick as quick as possible. We love to see people make a meteoric rise, and we tend in our sinful natures to love to see their downfall be just as devastating. So the Christian family must be careful that we don't entertain hearsay, that we don't entertain gossip and slander. We need to instead name it, call it out, shut it down, and if you need to, leave the place where it's happening, leave the relationships where it's happening. But here, if we're going to be careful, the first step is don't be party to it. Don't be party to it. Now, here's the second step in being careful. Be careful to establish the facts. Be careful to avoid slander, then be careful to establish the facts. So it's not like the sentence ends with don't admit a charge against an elder, period. There's more to the sentence, isn't there? So the sentence is not teaching us that an elder or a pastor can never be charged. It's not saying that once someone's an elder, they, they are, you know, touch not God's anointed. We've heard that, mis that twisting of the scripture before, haven't we? That's not what this text is teaching. That's why there's the accept clause here. We do not admit a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where there is evidence of a leader's sin, then the charges must be admitted. They must be heard, must be considered. Some judgment must be given about it. 
the evidence opens the door for the charge. It brings us into the courtroom, really. Now, when Paul says this in verse 19, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, there are several verses there that are laws concerning uh, witnesses in a court proceeding and the, the sort of the test of evidence in a court proceeding. Let me read verse 15 for you, or you can turn it with me if you like. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. The Bible says there, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Only on the testimony of two or three witnesses can someone be found, unless they're caught in the act, can someone be found guilty of the charges being made. Now, this is the Bible's way of talking about everyone deserving a fair trial, right? That someone shouldn't be convicted because someone else just walked up and said he did this or he did that without any other kind of proof. And, and that makes sense that everyone should get a fair trial. It, it's a, we serve a God who is himself just. It, it makes sense also because it should be difficult to take another person's life or to take another person's freedom. People should be regarded as innocent until what? Now, most of us learn that as some sort of genius of the American Constitution and jurisprudence system. If only that were true. This is a matter of biblical principle. This goes all the way back to Moses. This goes all the way back to the law long before there was an America on the scene. And it's interesting, when you think about Deuteronomy 19, and how it gets quoted in the New Testament, it gets quoted in several places in several ways. So, for example, uh, Paul, in the text that we're looking at, is talking about accusations against an elder. He's simply applying Deuteronomy 19, 15. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, applies it to any situation where two individuals got some beef, right? So he says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, uh, if you have ought against your brother, your brother has ought against you, go and show them their fault and, and you win yourself, oh, your brother over. But if he doesn't listen to you, this is what Jesus says in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So even in a sort of interpersonal conflicts and beefs that we have, this principle of two or three witnesses, uh, Jesus teaches us to apply it. In John's gospel, he applies it to himself in a rather interesting way. He's in one of those scrapes with the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and he's preaching and teaching, talking about who he is as a son of man. And, and basically they say, on, on, on what authority, what, what witnesses, what evidence do you have? He says, I testify myself. And then they're like, no, you need two or three witnesses. He said, I testify myself and the father testifies to me that I am the son of man. Even in his own person and ministry and life, he, he brings his principle to bear. And so it is with chapter five, if there's an accusation against an elder, we have to apply the same standards of evidence that the Bible requires for everyone accused. Whether that's an elder or a lay person or what have you, whether it's an interpersonal conflict or some charge against leadership, we, we only admit the charge if there are two or three witnesses. If they're not, then we dismiss. We must be careful in establishing the evidence or the facts. Number three, we have to be careful then 
to discipline the unrepentant. See what it says in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if in verse 19, guilt is established through the two or three witnesses, and notice in verse 20, if the leader persists in sin, that means they've heard the confrontation, they have been challenged with the evidence, the evidence is there, it's compelling, they're guilty, but they say, I'm going to sin anyway, I'm going to continue in this sin anyway. If that's the case, then notice what the result should be from the other leaders in the church. Rebuke them in the presence of all. They are to be sharply corrected, not in private, not in little sidebar conversations, but sharply corrected in front of the entire congregation. They are public leaders whose sin and unrepentance are now a part of the public record, so their correction must be public. But I want to suggest to you that this is a significant omission in the life of the church today. I mean, when's the last time you've heard of a church responding to the sins of its leaders according to what's being taught here? I mean, if we just let our minds run through the numbers of scandals that have plagued different kinds of churches over the last 20 years, it's shocking that the headlines are not more frequently pastor removed and disciplined publicly for sin. We think about the adultery, the sexual abuse, pedophilia, abusive leadership practices. We, we could go on. And at most what we see in most churches is a weak apology, a vague admission, uh, some appeal to grace. And then that guy just goes on pastoring that church. Or if they lost that church, they just go down the street and get a job at the next church. These things ought not be so. They ought not be so. Those found in sin and who persist in it should be publicly disciplined, just as that pastor has likely participated in the discipline of members publicly at some point. He's not sort of in a different category. We're all sheep. We're all members more fundamentally. And this is not only for the leader's good. It's also for the church's spiritual good. Notice what's said there. That, that this is to happen in the presence of all so that the rest, the rest of the church may stand in fear. When, when a church family takes sin seriously enough to discipline unrepentant leaders, everyone learns to fear the Lord. Everyone learns to live reverently before God, soberly, soberly in both adoration and a holy kind of trepidation. If a pastor of this church should fall into unrepentant sin, it is for the church's good that that pastor be disciplined publicly. His correction is in fact a source of grace for the congregation. It's the kind of grace that leads to reverence. So when there's sin in the family, and particularly if it involves the pastorate, as in verses 19 and 20, be careful to do three things. Avoid gossip and slander. Establish the facts. Acquit the innocent. Or discipline the guilty based on the facts. If we would be a church with integrity, we have to be committed to what the Bible teaches here. 
And let me say this as I sometimes said for the length of my ministry. Let me say this while I'm in my right mind. Because sin is a certain kind of derangement, right? And it's self-interested and it's self-justifying, right? So I'm not aware of any disqualifying sin in my life. You can talk to Christy later. But while I'm in my right mind, should I go off the rails into sin? And, and should I not repent of that? You have a responsibility to rebuke me publicly, to fire me from this job, and to pray and to labor for my restoration to Christ. I do not, I am not entitled to be your pastor. This church does not belong to me. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And, and, and the surest way for us to know that this church or any church truly belongs to Jesus Christ is when we obey him in his word in what feels to us the hardest things. So while I'm in my right mind, if Pastor T should become Pastor Twisted, y'all know y'all need to handle that. Y'all need to handle that. It's no mercy, it's no kindness to me for you to allow me to continue in sin and self-deception without checking me. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's be careful, number one, in how we handle sin. Careful to avoid gossip and slander. Careful to, avoid, to establish the facts. And then careful to acquit or discipline based on the facts. But there's a second thing we got to do. In verses 21 and 23, we've got to also be holy as we deal with sin in the church. Verses 21 and 23 turn to Timothy. And Timothy's responsibility for self-watch, as we've talked about in this series, in verses 21 and 22, and self-care, as we see in verse 23. And we can sum these three verses up by saying something like this. When the church and the pastor has to deal with sin, they should make sure to pursue holiness even harder. When the church and the pastor have to get involved in addressing the sin issues in the life of the church, the church members and the pastors should double down on the personal pursuit of holiness themselves, practicing self-watch and self-care. We see this again in verses 21 and 23. So we are to be holy. We are to be holy, number one, by remembering that heaven is watching us. Notice what Paul says in verse 21. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you. He goes from the courtroom participant, meaning the, the elder, to another courtroom participant, meaning the pastor who's functioning like a kind of judge here. And so he's dealing with Timothy specifically now. And the first part of the verse puts Timothy under a kind of oath in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you. And Paul uses phrases like this whenever he's being really sober-minded and whenever he's really trying to make the reader alert to the fact that we live quorum Deo, before the face of God. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in another case of church discipline, a guy is having relations with his, his father's wife, and, and the church is kind of proud about it. And Paul writes to him and says, no, 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 put this man out of your fellowship. And he says, basically, when I gather and the Lord Jesus Christ is gathered with you, uh, I'm there in spirit. He's, again, calling the witness of heaven to that church. 
It says, put this man out of your fellowship that he would learn not to save sin and that his soul may be saved on the day of Christ. Or, for example, if you keep your place in 1 Timothy uh, 5 there, just turn over a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul invokes this kind of language when he's charging Timothy to be faithful to preach the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul invokes the presence of God, invokes the presence of the holy angels, reminds us that we are in the court of heaven and says, don't you know that God is watching you, that God is witness to your life? There, there are no commercial breaks in his viewing of your life. He's always there. He's always seeing. He's always just. He's always holy. Live like somebody's watching you. Some of y'all too young to remember that song. I always feel like somebody's watching me and I got no privacy. Oh. Truer words have never been sung. There's somebody is not somebody peeping through the window or, you know, stalking you at the grocery store. There's somebody is God. That feeling like somebody is watching you is a healthy feeling. It is meant to remind us, we're meant to cultivate that feeling and to remind us that a holy God is interested in our lives. He's not distant. He's not passive. It's not shrugging us off. It's watching. And it's watching for us to be holy as well. We get a, a beautiful picture of this in the Bible, don't we? In the story of Job, don't we? Opening chapters of Job, God's in heaven. The angels come into his presence. Even Satan comes into his presence, that fallen angel. God says, what y'all been up to? That's in the Ebonics version. And uh, Satan says, yeah, man, I've been, I've been, you know, rolling through the earth, seeing whom I can destroy. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the whole of the book is God watching Job, isn't it? Watching Job prove faithful to him as God had planned. So it is with us, beloved. God watches us and his interest in us should spur us on to pursuing holiness all the more when sin is in the camp. So let me just ask you this question for reflection. How often do we actively remember and think about the fact that heaven is watching us? How would our lives change if we would preach that to ourselves more faithfully? So we've got to be holy. And one way is remembering that heaven is watching us. Second way in this text is we want to be holy by being even-handed. We want to be holy by being fair. See that in verse 21? I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
In other words, Timothy, when you start dealing with the sins of other leaders or sins of other people in the church, in other words, Christian member, when you start dealing with the sins of, of, of leaders or other members in the church, one of the temptations you're going to face, and it's a sinful temptation, is judging quickly and judging partially. One of the places where I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus shows up is when the church has to start responding to sin and people start choosing camps and people start lining up in favoritism, in partiality, in judgment without the facts, in what the Bible calls here prejudging, uh, root word for us, prejudice. And we can express this prejudice along gender lines, along class lines, along racial or ethnic lines. We can express this prejudice along the lines of age. There's no shortage of the number of ways that we can reflect prejudice from a sinful heart. And the Bible here says, no, 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 don't do that. I charge you now. I require of you. I give you this assignment that you would keep these rules, that instruction um, in the immediate context from 17 to 20, uh, but probably in a larger context of the whole book, that you live and minister and lead in such a way, um, taking into account all that I've instructed, do that without prejudging. And do that without partiality. That's part of what holiness looks like when it's a family of God, we are caring for each other in the context of sin. Now, the Bible shows real concern for Christians being partial in their dealings with people. And this command to be impartial is really rooted in God's own character, right? So you can write these Verses down, maybe look them up later. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, God is speaking to Israel and he's, he's telling Israel to, to care basically for the widows and the orphans and the vulnerable, the sojourners. And listen how he roots it. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Or in 2 Chronicles chapter 19 verses 6 and 7, which Pastor Tune read for us in the service earlier. Verse 7, again, just to remind you, Jehoshaphat is appointing judges, and he's calling the judges to be just judges. And part of the instruction goes like this. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. There's that idea of reverence again. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality, or taking bribes. Romans 2.11 puts it very simply to come to the New Testament, for God shows no partiality. God didn't play favorites. Not in his family. He's not like Joseph's parents, who makes the coat of many colors and seems to coddle the baby in the family. God, God's not like that. He's, he's not like David's family. Where David has this son that he loves and these other sons that he neglects. He's, he's, not, he's not like the broken families we see in the Bible or the broken families that we live in. His family, he loves all his children equally, fully, perfectly, without blemish. God shows no partiality. And, and because God in his holiness is impartial, he doesn't play favorites, the, the biblical expectation then is that God's people, his family, his church, that we are to be holy like he is holy and impartial too. 
Consider again what we read in James chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 to 4 and verse 9. But James says there, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 2. For if a man, he gives this example now, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I wonder if we have ever associated impartiality with holiness. It is a reflection of holiness. And I wonder if we've associated partiality with sin. And I wonder if we've noticed that sometimes that sneaky, subtle sin of partiality enters in when we're dealing with the most difficult things of people's lives, their own sin issues and restoration to God. It's a terrible place for favoritism to show up. Because if we give ourselves over to favoritism there, again, we're going to have someone whom we favor, whom we wink, wink, nod, nod at when they are taken in sin. And then we're going to be tempted to have someone that we don't favor whom we're going to crush in sin. And in both cases, we have forgotten that our mission is the rescue from sin, the the redemption of people from sin, the the wholeness of people repenting from sin and being restored to Christ. That's, That's precisely the time not to show favoritism. We all want to walk with Jesus. And we should all want everyone else to walk with Jesus. And so we want to be holy. We want to be watchful that we're not taking over these unjust scales. We want to be even-handed in how we treat one another, knowing that we're all made in the image of God. One of my first pastors um, arrived at the church, had maybe been at the church, is less than a year, maybe, maybe six months, eight months. And a young woman comes into my office distraught and um, is looking for help from the church because her husband's being unfaithful. Husband was a former deacon and uh, former leader in the church. And she's, she was, they got two young kids. She's crying out for help. And so I talk with her and then we have her talk with the elders and, um, the church had never practiced church discipline before. Now, if you're an aspiring pastor and you've got a playbook for how you start your pastorate, you don't want to start with discipline. You don't want to start with that. You want to start with like seven years of honeymoon, right? And so I'm talking with the guys. I'm like, we, we got to get involved. We got to make appeals. This guy cuts us off. He persists in sin, doesn't even deny. He's very public with it. Well, I couldn't get the guys to, couldn't get the guys to act on this situation. Probably three months later, another situation comes to us. Another guy who was committing adultery and uh, members of the church had asked us to intervene. And so we began to intervene and to work with this guy. He, like the other guy, was unrepentant and not responding to our appeals. And so as we processed this as an elder, eldership, I was stunned that 
in the matter of a couple of weeks, the elders were like, yeah, we should discipline this guy. I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. What about the other guy? And they stammered and hemmed and hawed. You know the difference between those two guys? It's ethnicity. One of the guys came from an ethnic group people tend to value. The other guy came from an ethnic group in that context that people tended to disparage. That's partiality. And so now we, we're sitting there unable to deal with the sins that we've been presented with because we got sin in our own camp. Right? It's the most inconvenient time to give yourself over to temptation uncritically is when you're trying to care for others. You, you, have, to, you have to practice this self-watch. Number three, um, Paul sums it up for us. We want to be holy by staying pure. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And I think until last night, I have always read this text and thought about it in terms of being patient in the recognition of, of other people to leadership. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. I, I, think that's, I think that's there, but I think that's a secondary application. In the context, I think, again, he's still warning Timothy about this sort of knee-jerk reaction, about this hastiness, this rush to judgment, whether it's laying hands on someone for leadership or laying hands on someone in sort of affirmation of that person. He's just sort of saying, hey, don't be rushing to things. Don't lay hands hastily. Don't take part in the sins of others, but positively keep yourself pure. So if we would handle sin well in God's family, we have to rededicate ourselves to purity, to holiness, to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And notice this parenthetical statement in verse 23, we want to be holy by taking care of ourselves. See what he says there, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's one of those verses former Presbyterians love. Drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, clearly in the context, Paul is thinking about the medicinal value of a, a glass of wine. Timothy is thought to be timid here. He's maybe got some health issues that have developed around his stomach issues, don't know if he's, uh, maybe that's anxiety or a number of other things that may be triggered here. But it's interesting to me that this, this thought breaks into Paul's head right here. He's been sort of talking about sin, 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 sin. And he says, oh, by the way, because of your stomach and your illnesses, drink a little wine. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know why that broke into Paul's mind. I'm not God. I, don't, I can't read his mind. He, he doesn't really tell us here except that I know that the word is divinely inspired. And it seems to me that again, one of the places that we are most tempted to neglect the care of ourselves is in the care of others. And, and Paul says here, don't, don't be so spiritual that you also don't take care of yourself physically. If you were writing to me, he might say, and T, be sure to go out for a brisk walk four times a week. Well, you got that heavy bag in the garage, go out there and hit it with something. Exercise, take care of yourself. Maybe for you, it's take a vacation, get some rest, be any number of things. And again, think about in the Bible how often physical fatigue is accompanied by temptation. 
and weakness from Jesus being tempted in the garden after fasting for 40 days or so, or David not taking care of the king's business out with the folks in the time of war, sitting out up on the rooftop looking at Bathsheba. Think about how many times in the Bible someone who's being inattentive physically winds up in trouble spiritually. So there is a connection between the care of our bodies and the progress of our souls. And so we should be holy in part by taking care of ourselves. There's a self-watch and a self-care. I wonder how we're doing at that. If those are two things that are laid out before us in the word, to watch our souls carefully and to care for our bodies faithfully, are we leaning to one side or the other more than the other? Or are we doing those things in proper proportion? Let's be careful. Let's be holy. And number three, let's be patient. Let's be patient. We see that in verses 24 and 25. Paul writes there, the sins of some people are conspicuous. That's obvious. Going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. If you want to summarize these two verses here, you might do it with a cliche, something like, it all comes out in the wash. What's done in the darkness comes where? Into the light, right? Now, again, it's another one of those encouragements not to be rushing to judgment when dealing with sin. Because everything we may need to see may not yet be obvious. Notice what he says in verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. So some people's sins are just obvious. It's just out there. It's hanging out there. You see it. It might even be their reputation. You know about their sin before you ever shake their hand. Right? It's just, it's obvious, and, and, and folks can tell. But now, other folks' sins, notice what he says here, appear later. When you see them, they're put together, addressed to the nines, they, they, they speak Christianese, right? They're always at church, but there's this double life going on, invisible to the naked eye, that you don't see right away. It only shows up later, either later in this life or later at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is the thing. There are no secrets with God. Nothing can be hidden from him. It will be found out, right? Now, as human beings, there can be secrets with us. As pastors and as a church, there can be secrets with us. There can be some things that, that, that lie hidden to us. And so we need to be careful. We need to be patient. The same is true of good works, that most good works are obvious. They are easily seen. And some may even be hidden to us, but they'll be revealed later too. We'll be rewarded for the good deeds we have done in the body. But in either case, what we need is patience. Let things develop. Let things unfold until you can see what you're really looking at. I'll tell another story from a, another church that I pastored. I had the privilege of being a pastor at, uh, I was a person in the church family, faithful. If, you, if, you're, if you're measuring outwardly at church every Sunday, 
uh, a real servant, had gifts of hospitality and was generous in using them. Um, very pleasant, never unkind, um, just delightful. And if you had sort of asked us as pastors uh, who we might have some spiritual concern for, um, they would not have been on our list. They've been on our list for persons that we were praying for who wanted to be married. And so we had that kind of pastoral concern and prayer for that person. I remember going away, speaking at a conference and was away for a few days and I came back and there was this kind of buzz around my coming back and this buzz around how's he going to respond. And I, I didn't know what it was until my admin assistant at the time was going to be with the Lord. Um, says, Pastor T, we've had a development while you were gone. I said, what's up? And she names this person and says, this person is about to be married. I was like, oh, wow. You know, I'm thinking you've been regularly dating and been proposed to and, you know, now, now about to be married and we've got some months ahead, et cetera. Long story short, they have um, carried on a relationship online with uh, a Muslim from the Middle East and they are trying to get married in like the next two weeks so that that person can have citizenship here, um, all those kinds of things. And so it was like, yo, slow down, what's happening here? You know, we, we should only marry in the Lord and trying to walk those things through. And we would sit for hours and walk through the scripture and that person would interpret the scripture for me just as I would interpret it, understood everything, was their normal, pleasant, kind, loving self, even asking how they could serve at this next thing, but they were just smiling in stubbornness. Smiling while they rebelled against God's word. Had been doing that apparently for months. We didn't know it. It became obvious later. And in the same way, you can find some people who are struggling with sin, and their sin may be more obvious than their good works. They are fighting their sin like a Christian. They are praying. They are in the Word. They are getting accountability from others and maybe even getting some counseling or some added discipleship. But they are pressing into Christ the best way they know how, and all of that's invisible to us. Until we look up one day, and that sin that had so easily beset them they're walking in victory over. Good works will come through too, but we won't know the difference if we're always rushing to judge. So if we're going to handle sin like God's family, we, we, we're going to have to be patient with each other. And we're going to have to let the spirit and grace have its full work. And, and we're going to have to encourage that. And from time to time, we, yes, may have to do something like church discipline because that's going to be the best way for us to love someone who is unrepentant in their sin. But we're going to have to learn to distinguish the difference, to, to, to distinguish between weakness and wickedness. And that we bind up the weak patiently and we rebuke the wicked sharply. It's different medicine to cure different ills. That takes patience prayerfulness, and wisdom. takes family. So, beloved, the single biggest threat to our 
unity, our harmony, our effectiveness at missions, the single biggest threat to our joy and our progress in faith is sin. Sin is most fundamentally man's greatest problem, and it'll express itself like a hydra-headed monster in a million different ways. But what we have to do is to have enough wisdom to be patient, have enough godliness to be holy, have enough thoughtfulness to be careful so that we treat each case the way it needs to be treated individually, that we prayerfully watch and wait for the real father of this family to take care of his children without partiality. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the thought of your impartiality and the thought of your watching us and the thought of our sins coming to light and the thought of the day of judgment when you will hold everyone accountable for what they do in this life. We pray that those thoughts would drive us to Jesus but drive us to the one who has died for our sins on the cross, who did so gladly. The one who has atoned, Lord, for every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit, past, present, and future. The one who, by the shedding of his blood, has washed us of sin and washed us of guilt and through his obedience has given us a perfect righteousness. We pray that the thought of your watching our lives and seeing our sins would drive us to Jesus, to hold tighter to him, to trust in him as our savior, to believe more firmly that his sacrifice has paid the penalty for our sins and to believe more firmly that he lives in us and is working in us to make us more like him. To believe that we don't have to tremble and hide at conversation about sin because it's been taken care of. On Calvary's cross and in the resurrection. And we pray this morning, Lord, that if someone has been made aware of their sins this morning, they've been thinking about their guilt, they've maybe felt some shame, they maybe want to hide, Lord, their sin. And they, they don't like the thought that hidden sin will still come to light. We pray this morning that you would free them from fear because you already know all about it. And you would free them to come to you with their sins, asking you to remove their sins, asking you to take what Jesus did and to apply it to their lives, that they might live forever with you. Lord, this morning, give someone faith. Give someone saving faith in Jesus. Give them repentance. To give them the grace to turn away from their sin and to turn to Jesus and believe. Help them right now not to hide. Help them right now not to think about themselves in pride, but help them right now to simply call upon your name and to call upon you to save them. 
we know you answered that prayer. Everyone who calls upon you shall be saved. Let every heart call upon you this morning. Let every heart be saved. Let them confess that Jesus is Lord and follow him in faith and new life, we pray. Do this for your glory, for the building and growth and joy of your church. Do this, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.